this is Robert Dillon, the host of the Help Me Understand podcast. Thanks for taking some time to be a part of this project. Listening for ideas and inspiration in a world that continues to be filled with noise is at the heart of this podcast. I'm excited to share my journey to understand in deeper ways by listening to the passionate ideas of educators, thinkers, and entrepreneurs. Help Me Understand is a small opportunity to be hopeful and experience the best parts of humanity. Good day to everyone, and welcome back to the Help Me Understand podcast. I am super excited about this conversation. Uh, Sam Chaltain and his uh, co-author and their design team have put out an amazing book. Actually, one of my favorite books that I've read during uh, COVID-19, the name of the book, Seed and Spark. It is really a beautiful, amazing book to rethink learning education, how we're connected. Uh, Sam and I have an amazing conversation here. Uh, I could have talked for another hour with him about all of his ideas and all of the things that went into making this book possible. I hope, A, you enjoy the conversation, and B, you go pick up this book. I can't tell you uh, that it is right for everyone. Uh, there is something in this book uh, for everyone, even if you just look at the amazing uh, pictures and images that make up this book. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy this latest episode of the Help Me Understand podcast. Hey, good day, Sam. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, so excited to talk about the book and the new adventures ahead. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think that, uh, I don't know, I get to be a fanboy today and talk about a book that I enjoy. So that's always a lot of fun. Um, I like to kick off the podcast, though, with a more generic question about uh, what gives you hope? around learning and what gives you hope around uh, education? That might be two different questions, but um, it's always yeah. nice to start with hope. Um, good questions. So I would say um, what gives me hope is the relentless audacity and capacity to dream up something bigger and better that is inherent to who we are as human beings. Um, now, of course, our audacity and our ability to dream up things is also in part what has led us to the state that we're at. So I forget who told me, but somebody once said, like every person's best and worst feature is the same thing because it's simultaneously what's most attractive and most repelling about a person. I think that's also true about a country. I think that's also true about homo sapiens. Um, so the very thing that gives me hope is also the thing that could ultimately lead to our extinction. But so it is. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I, and I think that I have witnessed over the last year now um, some amazing school places. And I, I don't want to say school buildings because we're evolving out of that term, right? But I've seen some teachers, leaders, parents, kids doing some pretty amazing things. And so when I ever need that boost, I, I, I do reach back a little bit um, to that. So uh, one more big question before we talk a little bit about the book. Um, education gets better when? What fits at the end of that sentence? Uh, when the primary driver becomes 
the unique individual and what he, she, they need in order to discover what is most uniquely wonderful about who they are. Mm. Where have you seen that happen? Well, to your point earlier, so, you know, the, the hope I gave was broader. And then you had also asked about education. And I, like you, I mean, so first of all, I feel really fortunate. Obviously, nobody's traveling now. But before COVID, you know, I've, I've been traveling all over the world for the last 15 years. So I've been able to be in and with lots of amazing school communities, which means I'm privileged to see more than the average bear. And I feel like I'm constantly learning about some new school community that's doing great work that I've never heard of. And, and you know, again, when I was an English and a history teacher, when you're teaching, you don't have any time to see what's happening elsewhere. So, so there's lots of schools that are doing that work. I would say if I had to just pick one, I would pick Reggio Emilia. Right. I mean, what I just described is basically the philosophy of Reggio Emilia. And what's so amazing about Reggio Emilia is if somebody suddenly has a new job and they're moving to Reggio, they don't have to figure out which neighborhood to buy a house in in order to. Reggio is the city. It's, it's an equitable network of over 80 um, early childhood and primary schools. Uh, and that's the idea, right? The child is born with 100 languages and the school usually steals 99. So the job of the school is to help each individual translate what they're thinking and feeling on the inside to the outside world. Um, but of course, there's lots of others, right? Montessori um, and beyond even those major networks, lots of amazing individual schools and communities. Yeah, and so I have to I have to follow my sword here is that I was in Italy about a year and a half ago. I was about an hour and a half from Reggio Emilia. I didn't go. You gotta go. I know. It was like I now I look back and I, you know, my it was a family thing and we we're doing this and doing that. Yeah. And I was like, but if I could go over there. Uh, but um my daughters were blessed to um attend a pre-K public school, Reggio inspired. And so we got to experience that as a family and um, it's changed them as learners now as teenagers, um, the inquisitive nature, the ability to say, I'm interested in this and I'm going to lean in the ability to kind of see themselves in their community uh, continues. And, you know, that certainly wasn't just those moments, but um, I agree. I, there's, and, and there's a great piece in the book uh, that speaks to that. So everyone should pick that up just to be able to see that. Well, and two points re related to it, you know, it's not surprising that as we think about what the future of learning needs to look like, first of all, there's lots of examples all around us. But if we just stay with Reggio, not surprising that two of the primary design drivers of what makes Reggio so powerful are a completely integrated approach to art and the arts. So the role of of art is ubiquitous in the process of self-awareness and self-discovery. That should be true everywhere. And also the idea that um, nature and the natural world are constant partners and companions on 
everybody's journey of discovery. That too should be everywhere. Yeah, and I point to the Teton Science Schools and um, the work that they're doing with place-based learning, which isn't that far away. I mean, it's it's a cousin of that philosophy for sure. But um, that one's on my list. I haven't been there yet. I haven't been, but I just the the way that they speak into making place central. I think is important. And I think that that speaks to the nature piece. It speaks to a sense of civility and citizenship as well, right? Like if you, you know, I've always talked about um, so many of our rural cities are brain drained. Kids just want to leave. If they had a sense of place and they understood the history of their place, uh, you can do almost anything these days from a place that has broadband. We've learned that right now. Um, there's no reason that kids and amazing leaders can't stay in their communities, but they need to have a positive sense of place. And so I, I think it's really important as we go forward. And wouldn't it be remarkable if the future of learning design everywhere, I mean, how about just those three tent poles? An emphasis on arts integration, an emphasis on um, leveraging the uh, endless awe and wonder of nature and grounding e each community in the true wisdom of its place. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're done. That's perfect. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I mean, really Let's get started. Uh, we, we do, we do though, try to make things a little more complicated than it needs to be at times. Yeah. Um, I get that there's bureaucracy and I get that it's complex, but um, there is some simplicity that comes from the complex. Um, I, I always want to make sure that I don't try to make the work of education simple so that the community doesn't think, oh, well, anybody can do that. But we do have a responsibility to make the very complex simple to understand. Yeah. And it, identifying the most essential skills we need in order to do this vital and difficult work more effectively is actually pretty straightforward. Like for example, one of the other things that has always really impressed me about Reggio, and this is what anybody will see if they go there, and anybody that cares about education and learning, this is like our Mecca. Like seriously, you have to go and see it. But what, I, what and one of the things that you have to see is I have never seen educators who are more grounded in praxis than Reggio teachers. They're, they are deep um, deeply fluent in the theories of learning, and they are constantly and emergently applying those theories in real time through real time research. Like any Reggio teacher is using the smartphone as a constant note taking and recording device to be on the lookout for things kids say and observe and turning that into their assessment data. And I have to say, when I was a high school English and history teacher, I didn't know how to do that. But had I been shown the value of that, I think all of us can develop the ability to be more praxis oriented in our work. We're just, we're, we're, we're measuring the wrong things. Yeah, and, and you know, we've, built a lot of implementers and started to eat away at teacher as creator. And I think that um, that's starting to eat away very quickly at 
a lot of people that care and will go and martyr themselves to uh, be in front of kids every day. But man, we can't keep asking people just to implement other people's ideas. People have to be free to learn and grow in real time and take what they're seeing on the ground and do something productive with it. You know, one of the things that I wonder, and I'm curious to know what you think about this, is um, to what extent is the future role, the future definition of teacher going to be and need to be different from what it was for, for you and me in ways that can be good? And what I mean by that is when I was an English and a history teacher, the main mark of my effectiveness, both externally and I think internally, was how compellingly I delivered my subject matter. Like, could I incite in young people a greater spark of interest in Shakespeare or American history? Whereas I think if I were to, you know, zip forward 20 years and imagine the 20 years from now version of me at 25 or whatever, I would like to think that they would see their role as their job is to be the emergent um, person on the lookout for signs of interest, creativity, awakening in the young people in my room. It's not actually about history and English, which again, let me be clear, right? It doesn't mean that those things go away. It just means that those things are the means by which we reach the end goal. They're not actually the end goal. The, 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 the child is the end goal in a different way. Um, I mean, I, I definitely see that. And just, we're getting to a point where it's getting really hard to ask a single person to be a designer of learning an implementer of learning and care about the learning. And that's kind of a unicorn we're searching for every time we try to find teacher. And I wonder, and can you imagine if a teacher said like, you know what I'm really good at is caring for kids. Do you have a job for me? I don't want to deliver instruction. I just want to care for kids. They're like, no, you have to be a teacher for five years and then be a counselor or whatever. Or you know what? I don't really, I, just give me the stuff. I'm not really good at designing learning but I'm really good at delivering it, right? Like there are people that are awesome at that. Totally. And, and, and then there's some people that like, you know what I love to like design. I love to like put units together and ideas and resources, but get me in front of kids. That's the hard part. And we're asking people to do all of those things at the same time. And I think we're diluting the power of what could be. So. I agree. And that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty radical shift. There was an article sometime in the last year or so in the New Yorker, and it was profiling the guy who was like the intro to computer science professor at Harvard. And suffice it to say, if you're teaching intro to computer science at Harvard, you're probably pretty good, right? And sure enough, he was pretty good and a pretty compelling lecturer. And, you know, this is something I say a lot too, like, Ed Parker Palmer makes this point in The Courage to Teach, right? If you think back, if everybody that's listening thinks back to the best teacher that they had, some of those teachers were lecturers, right? It, it isn't only about small groups and differentiated instruction. There's a beautiful mesmerizing power to a great lecture. 
And some people, to your point, are really good at that, including this computer science guy. So he doesn't just record his lectures when he's giving them in a lecture hall at Harvard. He's with one camera. He's got five cameras because he's aware that part of what he's doing is capturing that event in the real time so that anybody around the world can access it. And he makes a point, which is to our point, and he says, I'm not suggesting that my computer science course should be the only intro to computer science course that anybody in the world takes. But I am suggesting that there probably don't need to be 5,000 intro to computer science courses. So if there's 30 that are amazingly compelling and well-produced, and then there's an army of people who care about kids and an army of people who love thinking about the intricacies of learning design, then I think we began to get closer to what an actual ecosystem of learning is. We're, we're using that word more and more. And obviously that word is very much at the center of Seed and Spark, but you don't get an ecosystem if you just have a slightly friendlier version of last century school district. Yeah, let me ask you a little bit uh, about the book in particular. Where did that title come from? So that title has been kind of um, rattling around in our heads for a while. And the idea was um, what we feel that what the, what the world needs, what, what we need is to have new ideas seeded and to have those ideas capable of sparking new actions and ways of being in the world. Um, so the title itself is meant to be a reminder and a recipe for the work we all need to be doing going forward. So to uh, name this book properly, it's Seed and Spark, not Seed plus Spark. Well, I mean, my my partner, who is uh, the 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 reason the book is so beautiful, is because my business partner is a designer, Chung Lee and a wonderful architect. He and his wife, actually, who is an amazing designer on her own, are responsible for the reason that the book is so beautiful. And you'll have to ask Lee why he really liked the plus instead of the ampersand. <laughs> but in my mind, it's seed and spark. Sounds good. Like, hey, I just want to be able to call it the right thing and say, hey, yeah. I heard it from the author, right? Yeah, like, hey, right. I, I, that's the way. Um, and there's a, a software out there, what, called news ela or newsella and everyone has this gif gif thing about it so i might as well call it the right thing so yeah talked a little bit about the beauty of the book uh for those that haven't seen it yet um give them a sense of what they'll experience when they look at the book so um the book is a framework it, it's identifying the central design principles that exist in nature so in other words, we as homo sapiens have been around for plus or minus 200,000 years. Uh, and it's really only for the last 10,000 or so that we've been in the active business of designing on any sort of scale. Mother nature has been at it for plus or minus 13 billion. And surely if she has figured out some ways to create the optimal conditions for life to thrive, in all its diversity and complexity, then we should probably pay closer attention because 
she's doing it better than we are. And just to underscore the point, we design differently. We design in ways that are not in accordance with nature's principles. So the words of the book are meant to outline what those principles are and how we can begin to think about how to apply them by offering case studies from the world of art, science, and school culture. Um, but those are the words. And then, but the book is richly filled with images, um, colors, languages from the full range of diversity of life on earth. Um, and so it is as much a visual experience as it is an intellectual one. Yeah, and that's what captured me. I, I, I think that it's, you know, I think there's no way someone should call this a coffee table book, but it certainly uh, has the heft of that. Uh, and it's certainly visually rich like that, but uh, it is um, the combination of the images and the language that um, I didn't, the best books for me, I don't want to get to the end. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I, yeah. uh, but I was like, I just one, 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 one chapter at a time, one little section at a time. Like I didn't want to make it to the end. So those who haven't read it, um, if you do get uh, the PDF version, uh, it doesn't do justice to holding the book in your hand. So I encourage uh, you to take a look and preview that, but then uh, get the book because there's a power to that. Wanted to talk about a few things that were in the book uh, that um, especially about the Aspens, right? Yeah. And we, we were talking a little bit about uh, the secret life of trees and mushrooms before we jumped on the podcast. But I, who have uh, just came back from Rocky Mountain National Park right before uh, winter set in and got to experience the glow of the aspen trees, uh, read this and went, what? Yeah. So tell, tell the listeners about um, how aspen trees exist in nature. Yeah. Um. Well, so first of all, the aspen tree itself is one that people are pretty familiar with, both name and, and image, right? I mean, Aspen, Colorado is named Aspen after the tree. Uh, the aspen tree figures in history. It was supposedly the wood of the aspen tree that made the crucifix on which Jesus died. Um, and uh, it turns out it isn't a single tree, uh, but a single organization. So an entire grove of aspen trees is actually the largest single living organization uh, or organism in the world. Um, and so each tree that you see in a grove is actually a clone. Um, and it all shares the same root structure and, um, and is just one of the many reminders that are all around us and certainly one of the many reminders that I found in the process of the research of writing this book of just how um, marvelous and mysterious and interconnected our world uh, and we are. And I think that word comes through the book, maybe more than any other word, if you were to dial it in, is that 
our interconnected nature doesn't allow us to continue to do things the way we have been doing them if we want to thrive. Um, and I hope that that was one of the messages you hoped strand through the book. Very much so. But, you know, it's funny because, I mean, we started this project two years ago. So this was a pre-COVID project. And yet it coming out in the midst of, I mean, not only the first global pandemic in um, over a century, but really the first human experience that is simultaneously felt and experienced by all people around the world. Um, that one of the primary messages of the book should be, you know, there, it seems like a long time ago at the beginning of the year when, when we were witnessing the protests in Hong Kong, but there was some graffiti that um, I saw that was related to the Hong Kong protest that to me is now our should be our mantra going forward. Um, and it's basically what you just said, but the graffiti was there can be no return to normal because normal was the problem in the first place. Yeah, um, so true. And uh, um, you know, here in uh, St. Louis where I am, uh, we have been, uh, you know, when, when the protest around George Floyd popped up, we were saying, yeah, weren't you paying attention before? And so, and then people before were saying, weren't you paying attention before? And it kept going back and back. Uh, I do think we're at a unique time to talk about justice. And I think the book does that um, without using the term and says in a lot of ways that we are in a time of social justice, economic justice and environmental justice. And it speaks into that. Um, what, do you, what, what, what wisdom do you think the book could bring to those issues for people? Well, um... I mean, I think of the words of James Baldwin. So, you know, as a reminder, right, there are seven design principles from the natural world that are the essential um, ingredients of a healthy living system. Uh, and the first is identity. Um, and, and it's identity, both individual and collective. And of course, we can immediately understand the application of that to when we think about humans. But even if you just think about cells, right? A, how does a stem cell know which is going to become a neuron, which is going to become a white blood cell? There's, there's a porousness and a level of communication that gradually demarcates both the individual and the collective identity of a body of cells. And so too is it with us. So the, I mean, the wisdom of James Baldwin. So as I mentioned, every chapter has, a, has an example from art, an example from science, an example from school culture. Well, in the identity chapter, the artist James Baldwin, who 50 years ago wrote a series of uh, warnings that are unfortunately just as relevant today as they were when he said them. And the primary message that he had was that as Americans, our identities as white and black Americans are wound up in one another. If one thinks back to the fact that there were 12 generations of us that lived through slavery, 12 generations of white families 
that lived through that period, 12 generations of black families that lived through that period. So our sense of ourselves is wound up in our distorted senses of one another. And until we as a country are willing to deeply reckon with the legacy of that 12 generation long pathology, we will be incomplete as Americans. Um, yeah, I, yeah, and I, I'm with you and I, I've been spending, uh, you know, my time um, both growing and listening and doing. I think that uh, uh, in some places it's become a, a fad to be a part of that bandwagon and it, it takes a lot longer and nature shows us that healing itself is both possible but takes time and so i think that that's an important piece um what had to be left out of the book i mean at some point in time you had to make a choice between okay this person's in and this person's out or this story's in and this story's out what's the one thing that if you could have wedged one more thing in the book um you would have put this in there um well i will tell you um first of all we made a very conscious decision to publish this book ourselves so that we can continue to revisit and change it. So um, the, the initial version that you read, I would consider it's elastic. So we're gonna keep changing it and adding and adapting as we go, just as nature does. But I will say, that one of the challenges of writing a book is it always to some degree represents a fixed moment in time and we are not fixed. So at the like 99th percentage stage of being done, I read this book that blew my mind. It's called Entangled Lives um, by Merlin Sheldrake. It's a book about mushrooms. And until I did this project, I was not into mushrooms. But when I read this book, there was so much in there that I just, I basically um, immediately went through and tried to sprinkle the wisdom of Merlin Sheldrake throughout so that it will seem as though that was always there, whereas it got in at the last possible second. Yeah, that's very cool. Because I, I mean, I've been through that design process, right, in writing. And um, sometimes you don't know what the first three ideas were, and, or the last three ideas. And if you do it right, I think that that fits. I was happy to see Maria Popova make it into the book as well, uh, who I think has been a beautiful curator of words and language and ideas over the last uh uh, two decades like the, her story in and of itself I, I made it through her book figuring uh after about a year uh that's one i had to digest slowly as well uh, yeah. I, I would encourage readers to pick that up because as would i it, it speaks to the beauty of math and science through women over the history and and thinkers i math and science isn't fair but like all of these people that history have left on the sidelines because they weren't able to write the history. And so that's one of the things I thought was beautiful and just some amazing stories that she's unearthed that have not been hidden, but um, she has pulled up. So I, I thought that that was a, a pretty good thing. A um, couple more questions. Uh, what surprised you? Maybe uh, some initial reaction that people have given to the book or what surprised you in doing the research? Hard, easy, 
it fit together? It was hard to work with your co-author. What, what surprised you about the work? Well, so we started this project in search of the irreducible elements of a thriving learning environment. And that was our research question. So it seems obvious now that we would end in nature, but we didn't think at the beginning, we, we were open. We just didn't know where the question would lead. Obviously now I can say it led to nature, but the first surprise was that that was where the path took us. And then I will say it was surprising and really encouraging to me that the language around these design principles of nature was so accessible to me as an educator. For example, you know, in quantum mechanics, right? Um, I mean, the, which is which is the the science of subatomic of the subatomic universe. The primary word that scientists use to describe the behavior of subatomic particles is relationship. That you cannot separate the behavior of a subatomic particle from the observation of an observer, that the very act of observation changes the behavior and the relationship of a subatomic particle. So many examples like that where the things that we have always intuitively known to be true about what makes teaching and learning the most difficult, most rewarding work of, of your life is that same irreducible magic that must exist, the seed and the spark that must exist between adults and children, uh, uh, kids and kids. Um, so uh, that's part of what also I think gives me hope is we know more than we think we do about what really transformational teaching and learning looks like and requires. Um, we just need to begin approaching our work uh, from a slightly different perspective and a slightly different stance. Yeah. Um, how does this book continue to live and what's next? Uh, how, how does it carry on into action? So my feeling, I, I would say, I think of the book, it's like a raggedy and all of really remarkable people and ideas. And we have assembled the book as a container for those people and their ideas. And that's just the first stage, right? So um, starting in six weeks, uh, the day after inauguration day, we are going to be launching a year long design expedition for anybody that wants to participate from all over the world in which we start to exercise a different set of muscles together and start to think more intentionally about, well, what would it mean and what would it require in order to put into practice all of the things that we have intuitively known to be true and that we know the world most desperately needs. Um, and so people can find out about that. Um, the, the book itself 
as you mentioned before, I, because we want anybody that wants to, to be able to access it, anybody can have it for free, the digital version. If you go to seedandspark.live, um, if you decide you want a hard copy, a hard copy, it's available through Amazon. Um, and then part of the other thing that we're going to do through that expedition, to your point about the the book and what else would go in there, um, we're going to begin a process of deciding what needs to be added to the book as a part of that year-long expedition. So what are the new projects that we can do that become the new case studies alongside Reggio Emilia? Who are the other voices that we can add to and augment so that together we can start to spread these seeds as far and wide as possible. Awesome. Sam, thank you for your time. Thank you for your hard work on this book. Uh, anybody uh, that has interest in changing the way learning happens and learning from what we already know uh, should go pick up a copy of the book. I'll make sure all the notes and all the links and all those things are in the show notes for everyone. But thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Bob. Thanks for listening to the Help Me Understand podcast. For more about my work, you can head over to drrobertdillon.com or follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Don't forget to rate this podcast as it helps alert others to the great conversations and ideas happening in this space. Until next time, this is Dr. Robert Dillon reminding you that an intentional life is filled with awe, curiosity, and joy. Thank you.